Hi, I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Our guest today is Ann Beal, founder and CEO of Beal Research. Founded in 2003, Beal Research is a strategic market research firm based in Chicago that services some of today's top brands. Ann holds a PhD from Yale and has worked at Boston Consulting Group and National Analysts. Ann, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. I feel so happy just being here. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. Now, you've been on the show before, first in April 19, 2019. And oh. later, you covered one of my favorite episodes, which was a discussion on what makes a good story. <laughs> I know, it's great. Today, we're going to be talking about emotion, specifically the role of emotion as it relates to brand. But before we do... I want to talk a little bit about you being an author. So you are a prolific writer. You have six published books, including Strategic Market Research, which is a guide to conducting research that drives businesses. And one of my favorites, Community Cats, A Journey into the World of Feral Cats. What are you working <laughs> on now? Well, I have just released a book called Only Prince Charming Gets to Break the Rules, gender and rule violation in fairy tales and life. So that's a good Christmas gift for your daughters. Uh, but that's one where we analyzed fairy tales. We looked at 200 fairy tales from around the world. And we actually analyzed them for who breaks the rules, who gets rewarded, and who gets punished. Little spoiler alert here, we found that in general, male characters break the rules much more than females and tend to get rewarded, whereas female characters tend to get punished severely when they break the rules. And we're seeing some like over the last, I want to say, five-ish years, right? We're seeing more of the heroine role emerge. What's your point of view? I'm thinking like uh, one of my favorite Disney movies actually is Brave. Yes. What's your view on how things are evolving? Well, unfortunately, they're not evolving fast enough or well enough to uh, make me happy. Unfortunately, you know, the Cinderella is, I mean, it's a pretty traditional tale. <laughs> Those are the, the heroines actually that do the best at the box office. Um, I don't know if you saw the more recent Amazon version of Cinderella where she wants to be an entrepreneur. It bombed. <laughs> but I do love Mulan. I loved Raya. I love... Uh, uh, some of the great female heroines occurring out of Disney, but they are not as central enough to our culture to make as much of a difference as I would like them. But I, I'm happy that they're there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, me, 51-year-old male, 
you know, you say princess and I immediately go to Cinderella and Snow White, right? Because sure. that was that was the pool of princesses when I was a kid. Yeah. I haven't actually thought about that in the context of my daughters most recently. So, you know, my daughter's my my youngest is 5 and she's loves playing princess, but it is a really important point that you're making around how we normalize who can lead and change and who can't. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so that's kind of a fun book. I also am releasing a new version, the fourth edition of Strategic Market Research, the book that you mentioned. So that will be out in a couple of weeks. And I use that as curriculum in my MBA course. So thank you very much for that. You are so welcome. So let's get into the the topics. Emotion. It drives everything. We we all know this, although I do think that brands have been paying a lot more attention to emotion uh, today in, or really trending in the last uh, five years. So what does emotion, or rather, how does emotion impact brand choice? Well, uh, it impacts it uh, at a variety of levels. So there is an emotional response that we have to everything. That could be a positive response, a negative response, or a neutral sort of immediate response we have. And you have that to an ad that goes across your screen. You have it at shelf where you see a brand in front of you. You have emotional responses that have been built up over many years. Personally, when I see the Coca-Cola brand, things come to mind like Christmas and Santa Claus and family and uh, years and years of Coca-Cola advertising have really connected these things with that brand for me. And I have a positive emotional response to that brand. And so that's the first place that it works. The second place that it works is around emotional identification. You know, you have a response to a brand that sort of you carry around. When you see certain things, oh, you feel good or oh, you don't feel so good. And then there's a level of emotional identification that you have. I am not a carbonated soft drink person. So I don't emotionally identify with Coca-Cola soft drink products particularly. So when I see the Coca-Cola, you know, in the can or the bottle or whatever, I don't think, oh yeah, you know, that's not really a product for me. So there's a level at which I kind of just don't really connect with that brand in terms of emotionally identifying with it. But my running shoes, oh, that's a totally different story. You know, I probably treat those better than some of my dress shoes. I emotionally identify with the sport. I emotionally identify with the many miles I've used them running. So there's that. And then the last thing that emotions do is brands make us feel things about ourselves. When I take those running shoes out and I have a great run, I'm totally convinced, of course, that it's, you know, I'm such a great runner, but maybe the shoes are giving me an edge. And of course, I'm taking good care of my health. After I finish a run, I feel particularly good. I unlace my shoes. There's a whole set of emotional things that are happening there. And when I see my shoes, I have a certain reaction to them. And that is the case for a lot of things in our lives, whether it's the books we read, whether it's the things we eat, the brands that we purchase, that we use for our technology, everything around you, probably you have a reaction to, and you emotionally identify with it, or maybe you don't. And at some level, it makes you feel certain things about yourself. We found that when people talked about the Apple brand and how they felt about themselves using it, they felt smarter, confident, in control. Well, I don't know about you, Jamin, but anything that makes me feel smarter and more in control, I'm all for it. Bring it on. I heard a, um, this goes back a number of years, a, a keynote by Wozniak, one of the, uh, you know, the co-founders of, of Apple. And he said that 
they were one of the big surprises when they launched the Apple is that people felt the feeling of love when they held their phone, Yeah, which was not the case with flip phones, by the way. It's totally different, totally yeah. different like connection framework. There's a couple of things that stand out to me. One is that obviously motion is really important, duh, but your Coke example is a really good one that I connect with. Coke is one of my top five brands. However, I don't consume carbonated beverage. So, right. you know, I do connect with it. Like if I see a Coke commercial, I'm always in love with it. There's never a yes. bad Coke commercial, right? No. Um, no. And I'm a Coke enthusiast. And yet I am not a consumer. I'm not a buyer. But you may buy Dasani, right? Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that may true. be the place where it kind of bleeds over. But if you don't emotionally quite identify with it, you know, there's going to be something that's happening there, right? So, you know, you might buy that old Coke truck, you know, that they have the collector's item. You might buy that. You might, because you just kind of love the nostalgia. Yeah, 100%. So when you think about, I guess maybe we're categorizing it as like customer love strategies, right? Coke is obviously doing it really, really well and has been for decades. Who are some companies from your vantage point that you think maybe you're starting to do it really well? Uh, I think there are, I mean, I think there are a lot of companies that do this well. I mean, I think about um, like Asutra. I don't know if you're familiar with that brand. It's a, it's A-S-U-T-R-A, but they're all about self-care. And they kind of say things like, you know, self-care isn't selfish, and so they really make people feel a certain way about buying their products and services. So I think they're connecting with an emotional need that you have. And when you buy their products and services, you feel like you're taking good care of yourself and they're kind of in, you know, in partnership with you on that. So I think that's a, a kind of a good example. You know, I think there are companies out there, you know, L'Oreal had for a long time because I'm worth it, which was getting into that whole notion of, you know, this is something that you're going to use because it's higher quality. And by the way, you are a worthwhile and valuable person and should take care of yourself and use things that are high quality, you know, things like that. I think these are good kind of classic examples of, and I think that, you know, I can think of a million ads, but I mean, I don't know if you recall when we were young, there used to be on the TV, Calgon ads, oh, yeah. Calgon, Calgon, take me take away. Me away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you and I remember that, that ad hasn't shown in decades, you know, yeah. but it, it, it did a, a good job of that. And the, the other ad you might recall is a picture of a baby in the middle of a tire. Yeah. Do you recall that ad? That's yeah, an iconic yeah. ad. And we did a lot of tire work for decades. And we'd say, have you seen any advertising that is notable? And people would always mention that ad, which by the way, has not been shown in 30 years. Wow. But that's a really good example of connecting with people in an emotional way. And also telling the people that what you care about is what I care about, you know? Uh -huh. And so there's a positive emotional, that was Michelin, by the way, that did that. People have a, a positive emotional response to Michelin. And Michelin has done a great job of getting across the idea that their products are high quality and that they care about safety and you care about safety. And so therefore there's a level of emotional identification you're going to have with their brand. And so, yeah, these are good examples. Um, but it, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people came to us actually and asked us for help with emotions. And um, we work with some pretty major companies that were trying to figure this out and trying to help uh, navigate this whole brand connection, especially when people are suffering. Yeah, for sure. It's it's so interesting. The <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that. Calgren, Calgren, Cal, how do you say Calgon. that? Calgon. 
Calgon, there it is. Take me away. I totally remember that. And then the um, the other one that stands out to me as we go down memory lane is where's the beef? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but again, like an emotional connection to a funny, like a humorous commercial is is yeah. can be as powerful as um, a heartfelt one. Absolutely, yeah. But the point is that they're getting across that people are dissatisfied and they're kind of reckoning with that. And yeah, how do companies measure emotion? You know, companies measure emotion in lots of different ways. We have done everything from observational coding of people and their body language. We was just writing in the book that I've been revising about a piece of work that we did for a major pet manufacturer, food manufacturer, who had a, had created a version of a, of a Walmart. And we had people shop this and we actually coded whether they approached the aisle, what kind of facial expressions they showed. We actually coded if they touched anything, how close they got to certain things, how long they spent. And we had a prototype aisle that was exactly like the one at Walmart. And then we had a, a test shelf, which had some new products on it. And then we asked people if they preferred one aisle or the other. And people claimed they had a preference, but the preference was equally split. They couldn't tell us what the difference was between either aisle. They had no idea. But we were able to show they showed more expressions of surprise and delight in the test shelf aisle. They spent longer in that aisle and they actually handled more food and put more items in their basket in that aisle. And even though they claimed, oh, I prefer the aisle over there, they didn't prefer the test shelf aisle any more than they preferred the regular aisle. But their behavior told us everything. They were more engaged. So that's one example. And then we do a lot of work where we have people do self-reported emotional experience. And so they'll tell us what their immediate emotional response is to things and how they how strongly they feel certain things and how likely they are to purchase and how likely they would be loyal and what emotions are particularly felt the strongest. So we do it in a few different ways. Yeah. The quantifying it is interesting. It's, it really is. It's hard to self-report accurately your emotional state. It's actually... That's actually not true. It's actually, really? I think, yeah, it's actually the case that what we found is the self-reported emotion is the most predictive because it's what you labeled and identified and you were aware of. Okay. That makes if sense. I, if I see you have an emotional response to something and then I say to you, oh, Jamin, uh, what just happened back there? And you're like looking at me like, well, you know. Well, I saw you had an emotional response to something that was said in conversation, but it may be momentary and you kind of moved on. But if you say to me, oh, man, I got to tell you, boy, was I angry. Let me tell you about why. The fact that you can label it and the fact that you are still recalling it and, and can describe it actually is more predictive of your behavior. And it's more likely it's important than if it, I saw it, but you didn't internally label it. I love being wrong. I think the, you know, I had originally connected it to something like a purchase intent, right? Sure. But, but yeah, you're now that you're, as you're explaining it, you're exactly right. And, and I hadn't considered the, the role of labeling to the feeling as a form of enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. And people often say, oh, well, you just can't, I mean, emotions, you gotta, you know, there has to be something measured that's like on the face or, you know, it's have to put some GSR tape on you or something. You know? yeah, yeah. It's not true. <laughs> it, I mean, the fact is, if I get your report, I've got probably the biggest experiences internally for you. When you pull back and you've done a volume, a, a ton of work, I actually heard you present on emotion. I think it was in 
conjunction with GoDaddy. Yes. This goes like years ago. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite project? Oh goodness. I have so many favorite projects. I mean, I have, I was, uh, I was just writing about a project that we did for a, um, a laundry manufacturer, a laundry detergent manufacturer. They had created a new uh, scent product, you know, something you stick into your, uh, your wash and it makes your clothes smell really good. And I remember that we videotaped people opening the very first, opening the bottle for the first time. They had to take it home and use it for one month. And they opened the bottle and, you, and we videotaped their reaction. And then they gave us a reading. And you could tell that some of the women were like, oh, wow, this is terrible, you know? And you could also tell some women were like, oh, wow, yeah, this is great. But their, their facial response to that initial scent was completely predictive of what happened at the end of the study. The women who had a negative reaction to it, even often they said it was good product, they even rated it highly. At the end of the study, they would not use it after the study was concluded. The women who had that initial positive reaction were going to buy it after the study. And I thought, how interesting that that one moment was, I didn't even need to have them use it for a month, you know? It's that emotional reaction. So clear, you know? It's interesting the attributable value of that first experience. It starts really pointing to the brilliance behind Apple investing in packaging. Yes. Unboxing. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of that's like one of my favorite ones. But I have many. I mean, they're all different in their own way and they all make me smarter about this topic as I move along this journey of my own. So when you look forward to the next five years. Right. So you're, you're benefiting right now because you're one of the leaders, if not the leader in this emotional measurement for, uh, for market research uh, or consumer insights more broadly. What do you see as a trend in our space or inside of brands relative to consumer intelligence or consumer insights? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I feel as though, you know, I think that like Simon Chadwick said recently that consumer insights people have really taken a seat at the table you know, we are more valued than ever because the pandemic really caused people to turn to insights people and ask really big questions that we were able to answer. And so I see market research as continuing to be influential and continuing to deepen, you know, its role within organizations. I think that insights, I think, will, will become, you know, more strategic and will become more focused on knitting together many different projects and many different initiatives and become more of a consultant in a way, you know, that that's the way I kind of see us moving as being much more less project-based and more organizational based, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. My, my friend, he's a senior insights lead at Adobe. He and I had a conversation, had a talk at uh, insights. So, sorry, the, it wasn't, it was green books, IIEX this last uh. April. And it was really interesting how he is now, he now gives presentations. He's not doing like the book of presentations anymore. He will involve stakeholders throughout the research process from, yeah. well, who do you want to talk to? Why are they important to discussion guides or surveys? You know, what do you expect to get out of each question to like early, you know, at, at a glance, top line results, even preliminary results. What do you think about this? And then the actual like presentation, the formal presentation is maybe 5% data and then yeah. 95% discussion and strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems like 
you know, the right way, you know, and, and I, I mean, we, you and I have always had the focus that we want to help organizations and use market research as a tool to do that. But I mean, I think it's, you know, I was on a call today with a, a major client of ours and we we're telling them what the results were, but every single slide that we were presenting was like, okay, so here's the implication for you. Right. And, you know, you guys really need to be doing X. Are you doing X? You know, so it, was, it felt, but it felt like more of a partnership and more of a consultancy than it did a, you know, here's the data. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's nice to see finally, right, in my career, market research is really the rudder of action inside organizations. And I, I truly believe that. Like, there's not a single brand I talk to, and it's a lot of them, where yeah. they're, not, they're not, they're leading with insights or getting the customer's point of view at the point of decision is really, it's really key. It is. We are stepping into 2023. I still don't have a space car, but that's okay. What is your personal motto? My personal motto is always the same every year. And it's the one I was taught as a little girl by my father who told me, look at everything that happens to you as an opportunity. Hmm. And I can tell you during the pandemic, because we specialize in emotions, I hired a PR firm and we got out there and got our message across and we published widely and, you know, we added 12 new clients and, you know, we looked at, yeah, everything that's happened has been for the good. As I'm revising these books going forward and as we're next year, I'll be doing a lot more traveling and a lot more speaking. And so, you know, I just, I feel like life is a huge gift and I just look at all the things that happen as giving me some springboard and some platform. Our guest today has been Anne Beal, founder and CEO of Beal Research. Anne, thank you for being on the Happy Market Research podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone else, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hope you have a great rest of your day. As always, if you screen capture, share this on social media, specifically LinkedIn, tag me. I will send you a t-shirt. Have a great rest of your day.